My name is Holly Lewis. I'm Lawson Keeney. And I am Jean Lewis. And welcome to I Don't Know Why We're Doing This, where we stick to the list for better or worse. This week we have watched one of my personal favourite films that's come out in the past few years, M. Night Shyamalan's Split. But first, we do have to tell you guys again that we are planning to change the name of the podcast to The Long Watch. That will coincide with a change to our cover art as well. The cover art will remain recognisable. It is is still the same basic backdrop of a a cinema screen with with chairs in front. It's just been up-resed and redesigned a bit. And, And this change will occur with the podcast episode to be released on March the 13th. That will be our first podcast episode under the name The Long Watch. So do not be alarmed when that changes in your podcast feeds. Before we get into our discussion on Split, Lawson, why don't you tell us what you've seen within the week? Sure thing. Well, of course I watched Split, so I watched the rest of the Unbreakable trilogy as well. I started with Unbreakable. It's it's more of a straight drama, this one, uh, also directed by M. Night Shyamalan. It's about a guy named David Dunn, played by Bruce Willis. He survives a train derailment and he meets a comic book collector named Elijah Price, played by Samuel L. Jackson. He's got brittle bone disease that causes him to break his bones really, really easily. And he becomes convinced that considering the fact that David Dunn was the only survivor of this horrible train crash and he walked away without a scratch, he thinks that David Dunn is a superhero and that he is indestructible or super strong. I watched this before. I like it more this time. I think I was ready for what the movie was giving me more this time. I think the first time I saw it, it was something that I didn't expect, and the fact that I didn't get what I was expecting, I didn't like. So I, I was more on the movie's wavelength now. It's extremely Baroque. It's slow. It's contemplative. It's very much its own thing. I'm more receptive to it now. It's a drama movie. First, the genre stuff is all secondary. Yeah. The focus here is on the personal, on David Dunn's wife, Audrey, played by Robin Wright, on his son, Joseph, played by Spencer Treat Clark. It's a quiet movie. There are a lot of, like, whispered conversations. A lot of people are talking in this very sort of low tone all the way through. And scenes are like... There are long scenes too, like they're held a long time with a lot of contemplative pauses and things. It it has a very methodical pacing to it that builds atmosphere. And there's an ambiguity here, an ambiguity as to whether David Dunn is actually super powered or not, which is something that is going to continue in through the rest of the trilogy to the manifesto that is Glass. Elijah is a really interesting character. And I think Samuel L. Jackson is giving a really interesting performance that is sort of, especially in Unbreakable, very much outside of the the normal mode that we are expecting to see Samuel L. Jackson in when we go to a movie. Yeah. The finale is great. I really, really enjoy the sort of emotional climax here. I didn't so much the first time, but again, I was more on the movie's wavelength. I do think the ending is awful, and I'm talking specifically about the insistence on the title cards coming up telling you what happened to all the characters. Like, that was that feels to me like a studio 
decision saying like, no, I'm not. You need to tell us what happened. And I think it damages the movie quite badly, actually. I It, it was something I, I met with scorn when I saw it. Mm the first time it sort of corrupts the simplicity of the reveal yeah Shyamalan's in like total control here his framing is so precise and I, I realized a little way through that he was framing it like comic book panels like it's it's a very particular type of framing that is is built to look like the comic books that the movie's inspired by which is a nice touch James Newton Howard's score is also very, very nice and very, very strong. What do you think of the kid actor in it? I like him a lot. He's Spencer Treat Clark is really, really good in it. I'm very happy that they brought him back in Glass. I'm like Shyamalan has this weird thing where the kids speak like adults and the adults speak like children. I don't see that. It can show up on stuff like The Happening. Oh, yeah. Everyone speaks like a child in The Happening. <laughs> you know, hot dogs get a bad rap. They got a cool shape, they Got protein? You like hot dogs, don't you? Yeah, do we want to come to a consensus about the pronunciation of M. Night's last name? I've, I've looked it up, it's Shyamalan. Shyamalan? Okay. Well, of course I watched Split, but I also watched Glass. We pick up after Split, David, Elijah, and Kevin Crumb, played by James McAvoy, the multiple personality serial killer, introduced in Split. They're all in psychiatric care now, under the control of Dr. Ellie Staple, played by Sarah Paulson. She basically tries to convince them that superheroes are not a real thing, and superpowers are not a real thing, and it ends up coming into this sort of battle of wills between Glass, Crumb, David, and Ellie, Dr. Ellie. This is flawed, but it's really clever. It's very talky. It's sort of in between Unbreakable and Split when it comes to its tone and pacing. It continues on the Split trajectory of its thesis about damaged people and about trauma making us stronger coming out the other side of it, which is something that I... I like the idea of. I think it's maybe Shyamalan is clumsier sometimes when he's discussing that, but I give him points for the general concept. And it reignites the ambiguity of Unbreakable. That split certainly seemed to get away from in its in its finale. It, it does as good a job as you could possibly hope to of putting doubt in the audience's mind as to actually maybe these people don't have superhero powers. Yeah. Even after these two and a half movies we've seen of them, by the time you get to that critical junction in Glass, it's that that thought is there in your head. Yeah, Ellie goes on that whole spiel about the things that Kevin thinks, or that the Horde think that the Beast can do. And it's like, yeah, the bars were probably old, the buckshot was old, the people can climb up walls like that. It's like stuff that high level athletes can do and it's like yeah i i love i love the color coordination in mm. this film like visually it has a lot going for it yeah it is it's a really nice looking movie like the purple the green the yellow that color coordination is mm, oh so yeah good. and i'm un unbreakable as well especially that like final scene final sequence in the house at night yeah the way that that's lit and shot my problem here is is that there's really no reason, there's nothing for David Dunn to do. He's sort yeah. of the odd man out here. He's sort of the the sort of dour guy who sits there and is no fun while everyone else is being entertaining. Yeah. Yeah. It's in character. Mm. And Ke Kevin Wendell Crumb just 
as as a character is sort of played for laughs a lot more in this than he was in Split. He is a little more, I, and I think part of that's intentional. I think part of that is Shyamalan sort of softening him a little bit to help his thesis out as the movie draws to a close. But it did strike me watching them back to back how frightening he he was in Split and how how much of a comic relief he ended up being a lot of the times in Glass. Kevin himself is still tragic. Yeah. Whereas the other identities have gone darker. And we get a f- we get a few more identities and McAvoy as we'll talk about when we get to Split is just incredible at oh, switching yeah. between these people. Shyamalan writes him a, a lot more show-off scenes too where yeah. he gets to cycle through one after the other often in the same shot. And yeah. McAvoy is up for the challenge, certainly. I, I love what Samuel L. Jackson's doing here as well. I really love what Sarah Paulson is doing. Yeah. I think her performance is really good. She's an incredible actor. She is. Just incredible. And, and I like that we get the return of the supporting cast. I like that we bring back Spencer Treat Clark as the kid, as an yeah. adult now, in his early 30s. I like that we bring back Anya Taylor-Joy and Charlene Woodard, who plays... Uh, Glass's mother, who is she's she's younger than Samuel L. Jackson is, and yeah. that is yeah. obvious with the not very good old age makeup that is applied to her. But she's a good actor, so I will allow it. You you believe it in the moment, yeah. And the way that um, Shyamalan reuses old deleted scenes from Unbreakable, yeah, a lot of those flashbacks are actually stuff that he filmed in like 1999, and are available on the disc for Unbreakable (laughs) as deleted scenes that he's edited to put in here. He really is very precise with his continuity, Mm. and I I really enjoy that. Well, it's, it's a project that he's incredibly passionate about. Like, the character of Kevin Wendell Crumb was meant to be in Unbreakable at, at, at one point, but he just couldn't put him in the movie. It's, the movie just wasn't long enough to support such an interesting character. So he made Split, and Split was a success, and people liked the twist of Bruce Willis showing up as David Dunn at the end. So they made Glass, which was a pet project for him for years. This might have worked better as like a TV show. Yeah. As like something that you could yes. really unpack over an extended period of time. He goes too big. He's, he's He swings too big. Yeah. Yeah, like a nine episode se- limited series with hour long episodes could have fleshed out or maybe six episodes a lot of the stuff near the ending oh yeah the finale is totally ridiculous it needed way more seeding i i remember watching it in the theater and laughing hysterically as i realized what he was doing yeah (laughs) it's just so absurd but it's you know it's it's saved by the way that he stages it and it's saved by the characters and the character journeys that he has set up it is still ridiculous but i can go along with it twist in this movie i'm not going to say what it is honestly like my reaction to it in the cinema was of course m night Shyamalan would do this of course he would of course he would nothing can be simple nothing can be simple there always has to be another level onto everything and i don't i don't know what i was expecting because i think i got in the frame of mind of oh this is like a serious kind of superhero movie but no, it's a Shyamalan movie. It takes the most comic book pivot. It does. 
and you got to appreciate possible. him for that. He's in constant pursuit of that feeling that he got with the sixth sense. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And he has been for the rest of his career. I watched The Emperor's New Groove. Yes! It is a family animated comedy directed by Mark Dindal. It's set in the Inca Empire. It follows Emperor Cusco, played by David Spade. He's an asshole. He <laughs> fires his scheming advisor, Yzma, played by Eartha Kitt. She gets really mad, decides she's going to poison him, assume the emperorship for herself. Her minion Kronk, played by Patrick Warburton, screws up, mixes up the poison. Oh, right. The poison. The poison for Cusco. The poison chosen specially to kill Cusco. Cusco's poison. That poison? Yes, that poison. With a potion that will turn him into a llama and a absurd series of events occurs which ultimately leaves him stranded at a peasant village and he needs help from local villager Parcher, played by John Goodman, to get home and what do you know, he learns the meaning of friendship and humility along the way. Basic human decency. Mm. Yeah. This doesn't hold up as much as I had hoped it would. I do think, having watched a lot of the Disney Renaissance stuff recently, the magic is kind of gone here. We're switching into a quip-heavy script that doesn't always land. It's it's very much more the DreamWorks mode of things. The dialogue... Oh, yeah can feel strained and kind of sweaty like it's like like a like a desperate comedian who's desperate to keep the attention of all of the children you know some of it can be really generic kid stuff the fourth wall breaking is hit or miss as well although i do love certain parts of it the way that they they comment on the basic plot structure of movies and yeah like the the part at the end where they bring down the map and it's trying to explain how they got there and it's like well, you got me. By all accounts, it doesn't make sense. Or like how Kronk is like talking to the angel and the devil on his shoulder and we see it from his perspective and then we just cut away to the rest of the characters looking at him like he's insane because they can't see the angel or the devil yeah. and it looks like he's just having a conversation I love the part with the devil on his shoulder does a handstand and Kronk's like, Raising number two. Look what I can do. <laughs> but what does that have to do with me? No, no. He's got a point. I love this movie a lot. I think the character of Cusco is a problem. I don't... Th- I, th- I, th- I think... I mean, obviously, the point of his character is he starts off unlikable and becomes more likable as the movie goes on, but I think he's just such a grating, kind of smug, sleazy character that I'm, I don't really ever care about his personal journey. I think I would have been totally on... Putch aside, if he just left him to die in that woods, like, and the David Spade of it all, I have a low tolerance level for David Spade. He's generally pretty good here, but, and you know what? He's not to blame for the character. He's, he's being, it's a certain type that they have hired him to perform and he's performing it as he should. I... It's a very David Spade character. It is. And the rest of the actors are good, though. Eartha Kitt is very, very fun as Yzma, and Patrick Warburton is, like, one of the best evil henchmen of all time Yeah, as Kronk. Best in terms of, not in terms of quality of henchmening, but in terms of quality of character. Mm. He's brilliant. The, the animation is nice, too, but, but you're also starting to see the sort of slump that Disney was going to enter into in the early 2000s before they... They got their groove back. <laughs> the world isn't as detailed and textured as we've come to expect in the Renaissance era. The John Debney score 
stood out to me as well, mainly because I kept hearing a lot of the opening bars of Sing 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 in the way that it does its drums as everyone's running around. It's available for streaming on Disney Plus if anybody is interested. Well, I watched that, so of course I had to watch Kronk's New Groove, directed by Saul Blinkoff and Elliot M. Bauer. It's a director video sequel. Kronk is nervous in this movie. He's expecting a visit from his father, played by John Mahoney. John Mahoney's character has always said Kronk would never be a success because he'd never get a family and a house on a hill. And Kronk doesn't have any of those things. He he used to have them, but he's lost both of them. And so... He spent too long henching. Mm, so he's nervous about what his father's going to say when he arrives. It's sort of three sections here. We There's the sort of framing device of Kronk nervous about his father are coming but then he also tells these two stories about how he used to have a really nice house but he doesn't anymore and he used to have a really cool girlfriend but he doesn't anymore and the movie sort of split up into those three sections in a way that hurts the narrative flow and hurts the pacing of it more than most of these Disney director video sequels, it feels like a TV special this mm. feels like oh, yeah. TV plots this is not film plots. And that tends to be what they would do with these sequels. They're like extended episodes or segments from episodes. Yeah. It, it just feels less Like the Atlantis sequel, the Tarzan sequels. They were just like longer episodes of the shows. It's indicative of that era mm. of Disney sequels. It loses some of the charm of the first movie. And the script is not as good either. But the cast are all back. They're welcome, but some of them are shoehorned, like David Spade is shoehorned in as coming in every now and then to give commentary. I actually, there is a beat at the end where Cusco actually enters the story, hmm. and I feel like it would have had so much more impact if he hadn't appeared at all up to that point. Yeah. It would have been like, oh, hey, it's Cusco. And Eartha Kitt is back as well, but she seems to be doing a strange European accent here that she wasn't doing in the first movie. I actually was convinced, because I, I was like, oh, had she died by this point? Is this a sound like that they've got in? But no, it is her. And you get the expected drop in animation quality that you get in all of these direct-to-video sequels. It's also available for streaming on Disney+. Plus. I watched The Magic Pudding. It is an animated family musical directed by Carl Zwicky. It's based on the Australian Norman Lindsay book of the same name. It's about a koala named Bunyip Bluegum. He's voiced by Jeffrey Rush. He's lost his parents as a child. They've disappeared on a trip, and so he goes out to find them. And along the way, he meets a sailor named Bill Barnacle, played by Hugo Weaving, a human, the only human in the movie. He also has a penguin shipmate named Sam Sornoff. Wearing pants. Wearing pants, played by Sam Neill. And they are the guardians of a magical pudding named Albert was voiced by John Cleese. Albert can turn into any type of pudding that can be thought of at will, and uh, he is constantly replenishing. So as you eat this sentient living pudding, he regenerates his lost body mass. Does he feel it when he's getting eaten? I don't know, but it's far more horrifying than it was to me as a child. <laughs> it's a brutal concept, really. I mean... If he can feel it, has he just been eaten so much mm. that he's kind of just numb to the feeling? Well, he seems to want to be eaten. Ugh, so he's got some kind of bizarre death wish. Yeah, or sexual fetish. 
That too. Well, he knows he's not. He knows he's not going to die. He might just enjoy the pain. Anyway, there's an evil wombat crime boss named Bunkle, played by Jack Thompson. He is very hungry all the time, and so the idea of this replenishing pudding is very appealing to him. Mm. And he's out to steal the pudding. Have you guys ever read the book that this is based on? How big a part of this was it for your childhoods? Actually, not really. I I believe that we were read the book when we were children, as most Australians of around our age would have had happened to them, but it wasn't really all that big for us. We were more into other Australian... Like possum magic and all of those kinds of things. I loved this as a child. It was a big part of, you know, the stories that I was read growing up. It was like the magic pudding, the adventures of Blinky Bill, and the adventures of the muddle-headed wombat were the ones that I loved. And... I was really looking forward to revisiting this, and sadly, it just didn't hit me like it used to. And I'm kind of worried to reapproach the book now because I don't want to spoil any memories of it. That is the worst feeling, isn't it? It's very Australian, and I like that. Very heavy accents, lots of slang, use of native animals in a in a fun way. I like seeing that on screen. We don't get that very often. But as I, as I said, the magic pudding is a is a horrifying concept. <laughs> it's uh, and a lot of it this time reminded me of the sort of general weirdness of Alice in Wonderland, the sort yeah. of like yeah. bizarre, yeah. almost almost constantly changing rules of the world of Alice in Wonderland. That that felt the same hmm. to me in a, in a similar like, way. That, that could be quite freeing as a writer. Hmm. Uh, you get the usual kid stuff about friendship and being nice. It all works thanks to a particular brand of Australian charm that's in there. It doesn't really engage as an adult for me, though. It's a little too slow, and the animation is too lo-fi. It sort of it kind of hurts the pace because what you're seeing on screen just isn't very dynamic, if that makes sense. And it deviates from the novel a lot. There is no bunkle in the novel. There is no lost parents in the novel. The novel is much more episodic and much lighter, if I recall. Good songs, though. This is a musical. You've got some some nice, catchy songs there. Uh, And I still strongly recommend it for children. I loved it as a child. And it is something that is was very special to me during that period of my life. And I would very much recommend it to anyone with, you know, children from the ages of, I don't know, five to eight, somewhere thereabouts. On my recommendation, a cousin of mine has received, my six-year-old cousin of mine has received uh, the Magic Pudding book as a Christmas gift just this last year. So I'm still trying to foist it on to younger generations. <laughs> Hopefully that it'll play better for them. And if we can recommend Australian content, we will. Yeah. Did you know that there is a Magic Pudding opera? I didn't know that. Yeah. Down in uh, New South Wales, I think it was. Maybe it was Victoria. There's an opera company that's done it. There's like a little clip on YouTube of it. All is not yet lost. Strike a dignified pose and follow my example. I'll show you how it goes. Well, if it were in Italian, that would be just wild. I do love the idea, though, of a somewhat portly gentleman dressed like a magic pudding 
taking himself so exceptionally seriously, a tear falling down his cheek, yeah, just like the pudding. That's just hilarious to me. It's available for streaming on Tubi in Australia, if anyone is interested. I next watched Battle Royale. It is a Japanese-language action thriller directed by Kinji Fukasaku. It's based on the Kushan Takami novel of the same name, set in a undetermined near future. Japan is has fallen apart. The kids are all wild and, uh, you know, rebelling against the government and against their parents. And so they pass a new law, the Battle Royale law, to get them in a line. A randomly selected class will be picked every year, placed on a deserted island, bomb collars placed around their necks, and for three days they've all got to kill each other until one person is left standing. And if after three days there is more than one person left, the bomb collars will blow up. If they try to escape, they'll blow up. If they try to remove the bomb collars, it'll blow up. And people will see that there is a very strong Hunger Games vibe going on here. This predates the Hunger Games, but it is the inspiration. The author of the Hunger Games insists that she'd never heard of this before she wrote the Hunger Games, but some of the parallels here are just so strong. Like like even the stuff like some of the things that she did in the second Hunger Games book, there are two former players from the previous Battle Royale games who are placed in this one has spoilers, you know, stuff like that. It is very similar in a lot of ways. And not just to Hunger Games. It inspired a lot of stuff going forward. There's a lot of stuff here that is is reminiscent of things like The Purge or things like The Hunt, that, that movie from a couple of years ago that got everyone upset. Yeah. Very obviously, the the effect on Japanese culture. You look at stuff like Danganronpa or Zero Escape, or some of these visual novels and and manga franchises that very much focused around these groups of young people being trapped together in a enclosed location and forced to play a killing game. So it's had a big impact. But this is sort of the original, the OG, the granddaddy, and it's grittier and it's more emotional than a lot of them. It's very character-based. You have 42 students and you see a lot of them and you get these little – you get the obvious, the big main characters that you follow through on. But you get these little episodic beats and arcs with some of the more minor characters as well. And you get like little snapshots of who they are as people. They're all really well-drawn. And it's all very clever writing. So when they die horribly, it has an emotional impact. There are alliances and skirmishes that are very clearly meant to sort of comment, be commentary on the cliques of high school and the factions in a, in a normal high school. There are flashbacks that connect what's happening now to thematically to the way things used to be in high school uh, when they were not being forced to kill each other. When they were just doing it as a hobby. Yeah. The action is really brutal and raw. It's generally, like, really quick and kind of clumsy, too, in a way that I appreciated. Like, there's no, like, extended huge fight scene back and forth. It's like, no, someone comes in wildly swinging a a machete or something and, like, a couple of blows and it's done. You know, there's no, like, flashy choreography or anything. This is a bunch of of children, 15-year-olds, most of them played by 15-year-old actors who have no training whatsoever and are, are 
not very elegant in the way that they're doing this. It's realistic um, in that sense and kind of gritty. Yeah. Uh, and it makes use of the island environment really well. It wasn't actually filmed on an island. It was filmed on a whole bunch of different places. But it makes use of this sort of wild, mountainous, grassy terrain really well. And it really is about intergenerational divide, about war between generations, about older generations and what they think of younger generations and younger generations pushing back against older generations. This is the older generation is sort of represented by their teacher, played by Takeshi Kitano, who is by far and away the absolute best performance in the movie. He's so good. But he used to be their teacher in real high school. But like because everyone was going crazy and he he just they like bullied him horribly he got stabbed by one of them in the hallway and like he left the school and now like two three years later he's the one who has been chosen to run this game and he's just relishing getting back at all of these little shitheads (laughs) that (laughs) made his life a living hell but it's also this kind of like this this undercurrent of sadness and loneliness of this guy who just doesn't really have anything to live for and is kind of just floating around through life it's it's a it's a really good performance and it's a really interesting way of connecting that intergenerational warfare theme literalizing it into the movie itself well obviously given the premise given the fact that it was 15 year old characters mostly 15 year old actors this got a lot of controversy when it came out Japanese parliament tried to ban it both the book when it came out and the movie when it came out this had the opposite effect of actually making both of them hugely successful because it got a lot of publicity (laughs) yeah it was for a long time it was never officially it came out in 2000 was never officially available in America until 2012 because America can't go a month and a half without a school shooting yeah is the reason there yeah. Unless a pandemic forces them to close schools. <laughs> so it, it had a lot of controversy swirling around it. I, I don't think it's really quite as violent as people make it out to be. I think if you're used to watching, you know, thrillers of the Quentin Tarantino type, this is his favorite movie ever, by the way. Makes perfect sense. Or horror movies, you've seen far worse. It really is the fact that these are young characters and young actors that makes the problem for people. It just it just has a, a thoughtful, somber tone. People like to focus on the violence and the premise, but underneath it all, there's this undercurrent of seriousness that's going on. Like, it's treating it seriously. It's treating it emotionally. And, you know, it's, it's sort of playing into the talking about the damage that we do to each other, what the damage that we do to the world, what what children and teenagers are being dropped into into yeah. when they come of age, you know. And it just has a lot to say about how we treat each other, about morality and civilization and how quickly those things can fall away. Yeah, it's sort of like a Lord of the Flies situation. Yeah, very much so. There's a line that that one character... There's, there is a character who, without meaning to, ends up causing the death of all of her friends because of her panic and her bloodthirstiness. And she has this line that she has right before she kills herself. She says to another character, I forgot how much I liked them, mm. which I thought summed it up really well. Have you guys seen this? No, I haven't, but I've heard, no. I've heard great things. Yeah. 
It's very, very good. It's not available for streaming anywhere in Australia. I don't know how you would hunt it down. I have an imported Blu-ray, but it's region locked, so you might, you guys might have trouble with that. So I watched Battle Royale 2 Requiem. So this is a bit weird. It was directed again by Kinji Fukusaku, but only one scene. He d- directed one scene before he died of cancer. Shit. And it was completed by his son, Kenta Fukusaku, who... This is his first film. Here, the survivors of the first movie have are waging a terrorist campaign against the government that forced them to participate in these killing games. In response, the Battle Royale has been altered. Instead of being a killing game, the government is putting these necklaces on a, on a batch of students and sending them to fight the terrorists. Ooh. So they're off to attack a isolated compound that the terrorists are hiding out in but now they've also got paired necklaces for some reason uh if one of them dies the person whose necklace is paired with that person also dies just to make the game more interesting yeah but like kind of what is the goal here are they actually trying to wipe out the terrorists i mean if so you shouldn't be given the terrorists the two for the price of one deal here. Yeah, but it's also <laughs> like the raw entertainment of it as well you're getting rid of both so, you know. This movie is worse in every way than the first film. It has a radical change of focus. This is a war movie. The cast is just far too big. Not only do you get the 42 students again, but you also get a huge swath of other characters who are in this terrorist compound. It's far too big a cast. You can't keep track of them. And it's repetitive and monotonous. It's just people shooting at each other, then they argue, and then they shoot at each other some more, and then they argue some more. The translation on this one is awful. I can't judge the script because the translation on the subtitling for the English version is bad. Like, it sometimes makes no sense. It is always stilted. It's not nearly as good as the translation the first one was. So I can't really judge the script, but I can judge the plot, and the plot is certainly bad. It has some very troubling undertones to it. A weird anti-American strain that puts the puts the, the survivors of the first movie, draws parallels between them and Al-Qaeda. The movie begins with them bombing several tower buildings in the heart of Tokyo, them releasing footage that looked like they were filmed in Osama Bin Laden's underground bunker, taking claim, claiming credit for it. And then, like, there are way more parallels than that, too. It's, the connection is clear. Who are you meant to root for? <sighs> Them. That's the problem. Um, <laughs> it's This came out in 2003. So whatever you want to, like, for the, for the shit show that the American invasion of Iraq was, that hadn't occurred yet. And... So really, they were just working with the post-9-11, pre-Iraq invasion part of it at that yeah. point. And that's really troubling that that's something that they're... I don't want to say they're siding with Al-Qaeda, but they're, they're, they're deliberately making their heroes Al-Qaeda stand-ins. Yeah. And that's disturbing. America is like a villain. 
in this movie because the youth uprising in Japan is apparently spreading into other countries. So now the US has formed a coalition and they're going to invade Japan if Japan doesn't take out this terrorist cell. It's like, and again, this is terrible, terrible localization. And I halfway wonder if it's because I was watching an American Blu-ray of it that they never mention America by name. They mention that country. It's always that country that country that bombed us like 60 years ago like they reference american actions military actions in japan they mention they they reference america the imperialism of american foreign policy in a way that is not subtle at all but for some reason they don't use the name america it just feels kind of in a the message of the movie there are things to be said about america's foreign policy which has a long history of being very not good. The way that they do it here is just so inappropriate. It's just terrible direction too. It's shaky cam. It's like incomprehensible action. I mean, I watched Blair Witch Project. I watched watched all sorts of found footage stuff and I don't have a problem with it. But here, watching the, the battle footage where it's just like wildly shaking the camera all over the place, I actually got nauseous. Like it's... It's really terribly done, and the acting is just bad. I mean, Ricky Takuchi is coming in as as the new teacher for this particular class, and he's playing a, a cartoon character. He's like bug eyes and you know veins popping out of his neck and things. Like he's just like all over, like oh, like this all the time, and he like seems to be playing a fictionalized version of himself in a way that is really weird. That is weird, Ricky. Taikuchi is playing a fictionalized version of the actor Ricky Taikuchi, who is now a teacher that is being made to participate to to run this killing game. Like, it's bizarre. And the kids, I'm not going to blame them. They're all gasping for some direction, and they're not getting it. Good Masamichi Amano soundtrack, though. I'll give it that. Next, I watched Castaway. It is a survival drama directed by Robert Zemeckis. It's about a FedEx executive named Chuck Noland. He's played by Tom Hanks. He is shipwrecked on a deserted island after a plane crash, and he has to survive and get home to his girlfriend, Kelly, played by Helen Hunt. This is a one-man show. It's all about Hanks, and it's all about Hanks dominating the screen. It's long. It's about 140 minutes, and... Intriguingly, half of that doesn't take place on the island. Yeah. The Kelly factor gives it an emotional pull, an emotional connection that buoys the the methodical nature of his time on the island. But And that's really compelling stuff, like seeing how he survives, seeing how this guy with no survival skills learns to hunt food, to create shelter, stuff like that. I do think that there is at one point a time jump where we jump from him having arrived at the island to four years later when he's still stuck there. And I yeah. feel like we're, we're missing a section of movie in the middle of that. I feel like we jump from him being inept to him being like having been there for so long too quickly. We needed the two years marker in there as well, especially some of the events that he says have happened in those two years, that he's contemplated suicide in the meantime. I think we needed to see that. As it is, it's just a little too much of a jarring transition. The ending is a gut punch, though. It's it's a sad 
well, bittersweet ending, let's put it that way. A way that is a very non-commercial way to end the movie, I think. I'll give it credit for that. I do think it's two scenes too long. It should have just stopped a moment before it did. And Alan Silvestri is at all times in danger of the cloying late 90s sweeping emotional score that I'm glad went out of style. Interestingly, his score only comes in at the end. For all of his time on the island, there is no score. Yeah. So he is using 20-something minutes of music that he repeats a lot, and you can tell it gets repetitive after a while. But it's available for streaming on Netflix if anybody is interested. Lastly this week, I watched 13 Days. It is a political drama based on a true story. It's directed by Roger Donaldson, he who directed... John's favourite movie that we've done, Species. <laughs> titty Snake. Yep. No, it's Titty Tentacles. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yes. This is based on the non-fiction book, The Kennedy Tapes, Inside the White House During the Cuban Missile Crisis by Ernest R. May and Philip D. Zellico. It recounts the true story of the 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis. A lot of behind closed doors stuff at the White House. This is focusing on the American political leadership, the war room meetings, the arguments. The focus here is on three characters, JFK, played by Bruce Greenwood, his his brother, who is the Attorney General, Robert F. Kennedy, played by Stephen Colt, and JFK's special assistant, Kenny O'Donnell, played by Kevin Costner. This gets down to business immediately. There is no wandering around, you know, setting the stage or anything. It's like you're straight into the Cuban Missile Crisis. You're straight into the war room meetings and people yelling at each other about the best way to do things. It is all about that stuff. There is some some very vague, disinteresting stuff about Kenny O'Donnell's family life and how he doesn't get home enough and how they're so worried about what's going to happen. But the movie is, is as uninterested in that stuff as I am, and it's dispatched with almost as an afterthought. It's very talky. It's large groups of people yelling at each other. There's so much detail here, too. It's like JFK recorded, had a lot of those meetings recorded. So a lot of the dialogue is actually verbatim what was said in those rooms. And I mean, it mostly works, but acting out real life conversations without the kind of pauses and unusual rhythms of real life conversations like yeah. having no no pauses no ums or ahs like all of that stuff gone it can play a little bit strange but it, it does mostly work and it gives you a real documentary feel it makes you feel like you're sort of in the room for all of this and donaldson also uses actual archive footage of people on the street during that that period, stuff that appeared in the news at the time, he colorizes them and oh, yeah? he puts them in the film to sort of add an immediacy to and a legitimacy to the story that he's telling. It's very interesting. There are just so many ways that this could have gone wrong, like oh, watching yeah. this. People who weren't alive in the Cuban Missile Crisis and haven't done reading about it don't understand how close the world came to nuclear war. Like, there were so many different things that if just a few people had not stuck to their guns, if just a few people had made the opposite decision of what they made, if sheer dumb luck 
had not resulted in certain events occurring in the order that they occurred in, you know, it... It would have been game over. Yeah. Like, it's it's probably, you know, the mo- the closest that the world has ever come to nuclear annihilation. And it is jaw-dropping yeah. to see that. How, how, how is the colorization on it? Uh, it looks good. It's only a few shots here and there when they're doing montages of of people watching Kennedy on TV or, you know, people panic buying in stores and things for their nuclear bunkers. Yeah. I The shots, di- I didn't know that they were colorized footage, but the shots did stand out to me because they yeah. seemed of a different quality of yeah. footage. But for the most part, they have been remastered very well and they don't look very out of place at all. There is a focus on the character of Kenny O'Donnell, which is weird and unhelpful that he is this special assistant who by all accounts was not very much involved at all in what was going on but they sort of use him as the in into these conversations but he also spends a lot of time telling john f kennedy what he thinks and you know what he wants to do and all of this stuff and i'm just like why are we spending so much time with this guy and i i thought you know they could have just cut this character so easily and then i got to the credits i'm like ah Kevin Costner is an executive producer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Kevin Costner is a producer. Kevin Costner couldn't play Robert F. Kennedy or John F. Kennedy because he doesn't look the part. So that's why this character is here. The acting is good. You've got a very deep bench of supporting actors that are all fun. Greenwood goes for evocation rather than impression when it comes to JFK. And so he's battling far less than Culp and Costner are yeah. with the Boston accents. Culp seems okay. I I can't really judge the accents too much because I'm just not familiar enough. And I know that the Kennedys had a very idiosyncratic kind of Boston accent that it's not the Mark Wahlberg one. It's a, no. it's more skewed than that. Yeah. It's, it's more Baroque than that. But Culp seems like he's doing okay as Robert F. Kennedy. But Costner is like sometimes british sometimes australian sometimes south african like he's all (laughs) over the map when it comes to this boston accent he is apparently legendarily bad to the point where according to the imdb trivia in boston doing a kevin costner is doing a terrible boston accent impression (laughs) so yeah it's a very interesting film for anyone interested in that part of history but that's me done for the week what about you guys what have you been watching the First thing we watched this week is a film called Judy and Punch, which is a 2019 Australian black comedy film written and directed by Mira Folks. This is her feature film debut. It stars Mia Wasikowska and Damon Haberman as Judy and Punch. Do you know of the Punch and Judy puppet show? I do, yes. This is sort of like a heavily stylized analysis of one of those stories because that's like a, a male puppet that beats up his wife isn't it yeah not not just his wife like beats up anyone who gets in his way yeah. and this is like very old this is like yeah 1800s 1700s that era yeah so the basic conceit of this film is judy and punch are um, they're a couple they're doing puppet shows in this small town and punch is not a very good dude he's constantly drinking and sort of reveling in the violence that is sort of perpetuated in this small village, uh, because this town is also in the grips of witch hysteria, executing people that they believe to be witches regularly, so much so that they have festivals 
uh, celebrating all sorts of public displays of violence. And the Punch and Judy shows are a part of that whole thing. But when Punch... Gets too drunk and makes a terrible mistake. Yeah, yeah. that's in the trailer. And Judy winds up half dead. She then has Can to... I just ask, it, it, it actually happens? It's not like a fake out that they reverse later on? Oh, what, the the baby going yeah. out the window? Yeah. Oh, it happens. Yeah, that, that, that happens. Christ. That's, like, dead certain happens. Judy, sort of, like, Revenant-like, has to both recover from the very serious results of the damage done to her, and also find a way to get revenge. I I really like the comparison that the filmmakers make to between Punch and Judy shows and other displays of public violence, like witch burnings, public execution, public torture, even. That sort of obsession that we can all have around violence. And this is an extremely stylized Oh, film. it's incredibly shot. The, the intro to the film is absolutely breathtaking in the way it's framed, in the way it's mm. acted, in the score. It, it is just so perfect. A lot of scenes in this movie are basically live-action kind of versions of Punch and Judy stories. Like, there's a part where Punch, played just expertly by Damon Harriman, is chasing around a dog who has stolen his sausages. And, like, that is a thing that would happen in a Punch and Judy show. Not that I know that it has happened in one, but it's the kind of thing that would. And it has kind of a very dark, very grim slapstick humor to it. Yeah, the whole point of this is to show the ultimate consequences of that sort of uber-violent masculine slapstick. This is a very feminist movie, which I find very, very cool in this, because it is about how a lot of masculine behaviors are based around aggression, and based around being in control of things. And this film offers a lot of repudiation to those behaviors. The puppetry is fantastic yeah. as well in this. Every film that has puppetry in it, I I try to look at very closely to see if it's good puppetry. Not that I'm the arbiter of what good puppetry is, but going from something like being John Malkovich, which has excellent puppetry, it's become sort of my thing to pay close attention to it. it it's fantastic. The acting is great, and... It sort of loses me by the end, because it focuses then too much on the witch-burning element of it, and less on the original Punch and Judy show sort of ideas. And the ending doesn't ring true. Yeah. I'm I'm not going to tell you what the ending is, but it sort of like ends too neatly to be something so grounded for the rest of it. In emotion, you can find that on stands yes. in Australia. It is on my list. What was it that made you put it on the list? The trailer, specifically the baby going out the window, or just the style? No, of just the just the just I th- watched the trailer. I thought that looks good. That looks interesting. I'll watch that. It, it doesn't. It's not like one identifiable thing. Certainly, there isn't like I'm not scouring trailers for babies going out windows <laughs> <laughs> put on the list. That's not how it works, Sean. Yeah, I, I know, I know, I know. Okay, so another film that we watched this week is called Takeaway. It's a 2003 Australian film 
starring Vince Colosimo, Stephen Curry, and Rose Byrne. It follows Tony and Trev. They both own, live over, and work in adjoining takeaway fish and chip shops in Melbourne. They've fallen into a habitual rivalry because of an incident in the past. They are brought back together by the building and subsequent, you know, monopolization of the fast food industry by Burgies, a multinational fast food outlet. And this is exactly what you think it is. This is a McDonald's ripoff parody. There's even a Mayor McCheese-looking guy. There's, like, a guy dressed in a french fries outfit. It's very clearly about that. And alongside Tony's cousin, Sonia, played by Rose Byrne, and Dave, played by Nathan Phillips, who is Trev's new assistant manager, they try to figure out a way to keep their business while, you know, serving people good food, not the shitty takeaway from this Burgie's joint. This is really good. I really enjoyed this. It's You remember how last week I talked about Mr. Accident and how it's mm-hmm. very 90s, very Australian 90s, very youthful. And very indicative of a lot of the failings of that yep. sort of Australian humor. This, this is the exact opposite to that. This is early 2000s Australian comedy in all of the right ways. It is... It's funny, It's not, it doesn't punch down, all of the acting is just great. It's trying to say something important about how a lot of these... It's, it's little guys versus yeah, corporations. little guys versus corporations, and how... And this has been my experience, sort of, mom and dad owned fish and chip shops and takeaway joints and all of that stuff, like, privately owned businesses, they've always got better food because there's heart put into it there's a respect for the customer there's a relationship that people have with these people and that is sort of the main focus of the movie it's the community aspect of these two shops because people have been going to these shops for years the main characters fathers used to own a fish and ship shop together so they're sort of this they're part of the community and it's using the takeaway outlets as sort of an anti-gentrification message. And the acting is great in this. Vince Colosimo and Stephen Curry play off of each other so well, because Vince Colosimo is playing this really up himself, really buttoned up, takes his job very seriously, like, at all of this stuff. And Stephen Curry, as Trev, is very much... He's more of a larrikin, he's more of a bogan, he is trying to experiment with things, trying to do them differently. He's got a special recipe for his burgers and all of that stuff. And it's it's, it's very good. Rose Byrne is also great in it. The ending is... The ending is great, yeah. Insane. It's great. It's the, the thing that you think is going to happen happens. And you're like, yeah, well, of course, because they weren't going to get away with this. They weren't going to get away with this with a slap on the wrist. And nothing has really changed. consequences. Like, there's going to be a new burger joint built there, probably. But, you know, it's a nice little win for the little guy. And you can find this on 
Where did we watch this? I believe on Stan. It would be Stan. You get a lot of Australian content on Stan. I've also started watching a TV show called Superstore. It's a sitcom sort of in the same vein as Community or Brooklyn Nine-Nine. It's like a workplace comedy. And it follows the lives of employees at a big box store. You know, your Walmarts, your Big W's kind of thing. And this is really funny. It's got a really great cast. Ben Feldman as Jonah, Lauren Ash as Dina, Colton Dunn as Garrett, Nico Santos as Mateo, Mark McKinney as Glenn, Nicole Sakura as Cheyenne, and America Ferreira as Amy. They... All of these actors really go for it. They're very specific characters, and in the same way as Brooklyn Nine-Nine does, all of these characters are a particular kind of comedic character that will appeal to different people in different ways. Like, America Ferreira as Amy is very much your Amy Santiago character. Very opinionated, very clean neat, but also is... Precise. ...is vindictive and, like, bratty in a way that Amy isn't. Like, she kind of... Not not to say that she's, like, a mean character, but she gets... She's more childish in ways, as shown in one of the episodes where she has this feud against Jonah, who's the new... He's new to the store, and they found a mannequin that looks like him. So... Every hour, Jonah comes across this mannequin, and it's in, like, a different outfit, in a different situation, making fun of him. And she sort of needles him all throughout the day until he breaks, and it's really funny. There's... I like stuff set in stores like that. Be it a zombie apocalypse thing, be it a workplace comedy. I just think that those sort of stores, like supermarkets, big box stores, they're such idea spaces, you know? There's so much potential. And the writing is fascinating, too. They go darker than Brooklyn Nine-Nine in in very interesting ways. And, I yeah, I really enjoy this. It's, it's nice light entertainment for when there's sort of nothing else on and you just want to chuck on something that'll make you laugh. And that would have been on... It's on Binge and Netflix. Now for our short segment, Save Me From Smallville, where we talk about the scary and disturbing and really dark shit that happens in the Superman origin story, Smallville. We're coming up to the end of season four, and this season has been kind of a rough one. Season four, episode 17. Lex's dark side gets split from him, and we get to see a sneak peek of his future self, who's really, really cruel, and really loves lording power over other people. Lionel has always despised Lex, not for his selfishness or cruelty, but for his restraint. Yeah. So when he meets this Dark Lex, he respects Dark Lex more, which is really disturbing to see. Episode 18. A stereotypical mean girl character gets the power to possess other people, like a ghost, essentially. She kills her own comatose body while possessing a nurse, which is like... You have to do some mental loop-de-loops with that one. Mm. Chloe gives legitimately good life advice about expectations. Coming from Alice and Mac, I don't know how I'm meant to take it. 
Yeah. What happens to this the spirit or ghost of this this mean girl at the end of the episode? I don't know. She just kind of floats. She kind of fades away. I I assume that she's being dragged to hell. I have to assume. Okay, so like she eventually possesses Clark. Then Jonathan Kent does a kryptonite exorcism on it yes! to expel her yes. sort of like spirit, which is rad. Episode twenty, which is really about the terrors of growing up. What I mean is growing from a baby to a teenager in the span of forty-eight hours. Clark and Lana come across a kid in a field in a crater who has advanced aging cycles, and every time he ages, he expels energy. So eventually, when he's done absorbing energy, he will just explode and die. Yeah. And there's a lot really terrifying about that, because he only lives for about maybe three days, yeah. and he doesn't understand fully what's happening to him as he is aging up over the course of that time. It's really, really tragic yeah. to see see happen and really tragic for clark to witness because that could have always been him and clark and lana they kind of they run through they grew attached to him and they get to witness someone who considered them his parents just die it's really tragic although it is interesting when the like the first time like this is when he's a seven-year-old he said he calls clark and lana mum and dad no, yeah, he calls them mum and dad. And there's that moment where I'm like, yeah, just wait. In about four hours, you'll be screaming that, you, that you'd that hate them and that they're not your parents. And then, like, an hour after that, you're going to apologize and understand that they're doing their best. <laughs> like, it's, like, so, like, sped up yeah. that it can be quite disturbing. Like, in a few seconds, uh, he's going to have his My Chemical Romance... Like he's gonna have his emo phase in three, phase two, is over in three, one, two, one, and it's done. He's realized that it's not part of his personality. He was just trying to find himself. So that's what we've seen within the week. Now we're going to play for you the trailer to M Night Shyamalan's Split. Pardon me, sir, I think you have the wrong car. You've emailed for an appointment two days in a row. Tell me what's going on. I've never seen a case like this before. 23 identities live in Kevin's body. Did something happen? There's a flower on the pillows, a flower in the bathroom, like we're important. Who is that? Maybe she can help us. We're here! Why are you here? Don't worry. He knows what you're here for. He's not allowed to touch you. He knows that. Mm-mm. My name's Hedwig. I have red socks. How old are you? Nine. The human brain is the most complex object in the universe. The only way we're getting out of here is if one of them decides to let us out. Aren't you the clever one? Hedrick, could you help us? Okay. I have a window in my room. Maybe you could show us. Oh, that's here. Now it's closed. Now it's open. Did you think it was a real window? 
tell him you could leave? An individual with multiple personalities can change their body chemistry with their thoughts. Someone's coming for you. What will happen when he unlocks the potential of his brain? There is no limit to what he can become. Tonight is a sacred night. You will be in the presence of something greater. The world will understand now. The beast is real. He's done awful things to people and he'll do awful things to you. That was the theatrical trailer for Split. It is a psychological thriller directed by M. Night Shyamalan, and it follows Casey Cook, played by Anya Taylor-Joy, a withdrawn teenage girl who is abducted along with two classmates by a mentally disturbed man named Kevin Wendell Crumb, played by James McAvoy. Suffering from dissociative identity disorder, Crumb has 23 distinct personalities, including Patricia, a very proper English woman, Hedwig, a nine-year-old boy, and Dennis, a dour and frightening man who presents the captives with their most prominent physical threat. These three personalities have overwhelmed the other 20 and are preparing for the predicted emergence of a 24th, the Beast, a persona they believe to possess supernatural powers. Casey and her companions are to be human sacrifices to this new personality, a suggestion which understandably prompts them to try and find an escape from their imprisonment in a labyrinthine underground cellar. So before we get too far into this, why don't we start off with our timed 30-second thoughts about what we think about this movie, what we think about Split. Why don't you start us off, John? Let me just cue you up here. Are you ready? Mm Mm-hmm. Three, two, one, go. I like this movie a lot. I like the, I love the acting from James McAvoy and Anya Taylor-Joy. They both knock it out of the park completely. I love the way it's shot as well. Everything is so beautifully framed and shot. Questionable use of DID as main crux of the film, and that has been a point of contention for a lot of viewers who have experience with dissociative identity disorder but we'll get into that you ready holly yep three two one go i love split it really got me interested back in stuff like unbreakable i think this is an acting masterclass from mcavoy and anya taylor joy it is just so very well realized but like john said it does have some questionable questionable use of uh things like did all right you have me queued up john yep three two one i think this is an excellent movie i think that i i will third your criticisms of its use of did as a as a menace uh as a, as a threat to its characters but the acting here is extraordinary uh not just from McAvoy and Taylor Joy, but I love Betty Buckley as the therapist. I think she's brilliant. And it's just a really tight, tense thriller. It's a return to form for Shyamalan. So I would like to start off with, as we have done with some other twist-related films, that we start with the twist. Mm. 
And I would like to ask you to, did you know going into this movie that it was a sequel to Unbreakable? And if so, had you seen Unbreakable beforehand? Right, so uh, I'll go first. I have quite the interesting history with the film Unbreakable. Quite early into my getting really into comic books, I started really looking into deconstruction and ideas and films that take it to the logical extreme, like Unbreakable, Super, you know, stuff like that. So I really got into Unbreakable, but I was always struck by how how slow Unbreakable was. And I've been, I've enjoyed a lot of Shyamalan's work. So when I saw Split, the Split trailer for the first time, uh, I know my initial reaction was, yeah, I don't know. But, you know, I was mainly in, into it for McAvoy. I was, oh no, I knew that there was a twist, because you always know there's a twist. But I knew it had a connection, I had heard it had a connection to a previous Shyamalan work. I just wasn't exactly sure which. John knew. Mm. And I got really, really excited. He did. When, that in that final scene, that lady was like, Oh, it, this reminds me of that one time where a crazy guy in a wheelchair decided to derail a couple of trains. I was Which, like, madam, in what way does the cannibalistic serial killer with multiple personalities remind you of the man who derailed the train? In what manner at all? <laughs> they gave him a they gave him a funny name too. Then you got Bruce Willis yeah. just saying Mr. Gloss. I was like <gasps> The the way that Harley's hype sort of built was <laughs> shows the diner or or like the the ending with McAvoy talking into the mirror and all of the personalities talking about they'll they believe we exist now and we'll show them. That's where his hype started. My response there with that final bit with the horde was just like, hang on. It was like I'll, I'll explain it. It was like building from there when it got to the news thing in the diner and the talking. The moment said. They gave him, they've given him a disturbing nickname, The Horde. And then Harley's hype just got bigger. Person starts talking about Mr. Glass, bigger, reaching to a crescendo. And the moment he saw Bruce Willis, Harley started clapping and cheering. <laughs> it was so fun to watch. Like, it's such, it's such clunky lines and clunky delivery. I don't give a shit. <laughs> it's just like... I, I really got a kick out of Unbreakable and how much they deconstruct the the ideas found in comic books and superhero stories. So when that that final teaser scene happened, I was like, holy shit, this wasn't just a thriller film. This wasn't just a horror film. This was a supervillain origin story this entire time. Yeah. So that, like, that, that I was, I had initial like, hesitancy about the use of DID as superpowers, but after it was revealed to be part of Unbreakable, the, the Unbreakable universe, I was like, oh yeah, of course it's not real. This is a superhero story. It, of course it doesn't make sense. This is this is a superpower. Mm. So I was just like, it, 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 it helped reframe a lot of what I had thought. And you did know, did you, I did know. John? Obviously, I knew going in, in order to watch Harley's growing realization. That was fun. I only knew because I had read a leaked ending for the movie where 
this person was saying that it turned out that Dennis, Patricia, and all of that were not DID alters. That this was just a psychopath who was doing this to terrify these young girls. That's the ending that I had read was the ending for the movie. Which is not real. Yeah, which is not real, which I was like, "Eh, that's kind of interesting. But then I looked up the ending and I was like, okay, read the David Dunn thing. Ooh, okay. Why do you do that to yourself? Why do you seek out spoilers? I I don't often speak seek out spoilers, but for this one in particular, I knew that it wasn't going to hurt my enjoyment of the film because I didn't know much of what else was going to happen. I just knew I just knew generally James McAvoy kicks ass and there's a connection to Unbreakable. I didn't know about like I didn't know that the therapist was going to die. I didn't know that those two other girls were going to die. I I knew nothing about Casey's backstory. And so it's like, it didn't ruin, it didn't spoil the movie for me. It just told me, oh, this is something that's happening at the it end. It told you how to reframe it. Sure, sure. But I was able to trick myself while watching it to not think about that. See, I just try and avoid spoilers as much as I can. And then I get really irritated when I'm scrolling through YouTube and in my recommends comes up a video that says, let's talk about so-and-so turning up on WandaVision. Yeah. That always happens, doesn't it? Yeah. Only for the really big things. And I mean, I do it to myself, don't I, that I've got this this multi-decade long plan as to television. I can when it's a movie I can generally avoid it because the I only spoilers for big things are the only things that you can't avoid. Yeah. And big things come when it's a movie I see in cinemas. Mm. So I can mostly avoid it there. But, like, I know who wins the Iron Throne in Game of Thrones. I know who turns up at the end of The Mandalorian Season 2. I know who turns up in WandaVision, you know. So yeah. you can't you can't avoid it. It's it's easier to avoid when it's something like... when it's When it's not something where you immediately recognize a character's name... Like, I hear every now and then, oh, so-and-so died on The Walking Dead. I'm like, I have no idea who that is. I'll have forgotten the name by the time I get around to watching it. I didn't know that this was a sequel to Unbreakable. I had actually serendipitously only watched Unbreakable for the first time a few months before this movie came out. (laughs) It was purely by accident that I was prepped for this. So Cool. I'm sitting there. I had heard that there was a gigantic twist that everyone was freaking out about. And we got to the end. And I'm like, oh, okay. I, I wasn't all that taken with it. I Again, the first time I saw Unbreakable, I didn't really like it. Yeah. So that might have had an effect there. But also it, it kind of just, it didn't feel like, it didn't feel like a twist that had any impact on the story of the movie I just watched, you know. Mm. It was more like a twist for the next movie. Yeah. It's a, a, a secret announcement for another movie at the end of this yeah. one, yeah. almost. But what I really found interesting was the reaction of the other people in my audience who were totally confused, had clearly <laughs> not seen Unbreakable, had no idea why Bruce Willis was suddenly in the movie, didn't know who this Mr. Glass guy was that they were talking about, and were kind of confused that I was sitting there kind of laughing to myself that Bruce Willis was in the movie now. Hmm. And I heard people as I was exiting the theatre. What was that? Why was Bruce Willis there? 
It's it makes you feel. We had some of those responses in our viewing, and it sort of makes you feel like you know a secret nobody else knows. No, but but I do love how it's this thing where Unbreakable is a cult classic among Shyamalan aficionados, and sort of on the borders of superhero movie aficionados. And it's not. It wasn't this absolutely massive film. And a lot of people's reaction is seeing David Dunn. It's like, this means nothing to me. Some people would be like, what, was this connected to Die Hard or something? <laughs> it's, yeah, it's like, I don't know, if, if Ryan Johnson made another time travel movie and then at the very end, Joseph Gordon-Levitt with his Bruce Willis chin turned up and said something and everyone would be like, why is Joseph Gordon-Levitt there? Yeah. Why has he got that gigantic chin? <laughs> like, it works if you know it, but it's kind of weird if it's you a don't bo- it's a bold move i have to admit oh yeah but at the same time as you say bold really gutsy like it is a secret sequel to another movie that you don't know it's a sequel until really late in the game i can only think of one other movie that i'm aware of that that is the case there's a movie called the endless by the, the, that new movie, Synchronic. The directors of that have done two other movies, Resolution and The Endless. And Resolution, there, there is a moment in The Endless where you all of a sudden realise that it is taking place in the same continuity as mm. Resolution. And that I haven't seen it, I just know that they're both on my list. I just know that there is the connection there. They're both sort of cosmic weirdness movies that ended up being connected it's an interesting thing, and especially, you know, it was especially interesting given that Shyamalan and Blumhouse and Universal didn't have the rights yeah. to David Dunn. That mm. this was actually something that he kind of approached Disney about, because Disney owns Unbreakable and David Dunn. They released Unbreakable under Touchstone. So they approached Disney about it and asked if they could use the character at the end of the film. And Disney said yes. Yeah, Disney was probably like, holy shit, we own that? (laughs) It's like when you forget you've got a voucher in your wallet and you're like, ooh, hasn't expired yet. And there was sort of a vague agreement that if everything worked out and they did want to make a sequel, that Disney would be a partner in that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's... It's a little, it was unexpected and a little unusual even in that it it involved Disney working together with Universal in a collaborative manner in a way that you don't generally get very much. Again, probably because Unbreakable is Unbreakable. I mean, I can't imagine if M. Night Shyamalan came along and said, and then I want, I don't know, Spider-Man to show up at the end of the movie. <laughs> like, they wouldn't have been on board for that. Oh, no. they Iron would Man. tell him in no uncertain terms to go fuck himself. Yeah. Like, like we're not giving you one of our big characters. That That's not going to happen, Shyamalan. You take David Dunn and you run along now. So, yeah, that's... It is interesting in the manner that it... The type of twist that it is and the type of reveal that it is. Mm. I... I mean, Shyamalan has a real hit-and-miss track record when it comes to his twists. Oh, yeah. Mm. Sixth Sense, great twist. Signs, I don't think, has a twist. People like to frame the water as being a twist, a twist, but it isn't. It's not a twist. The Village, 
The village sounds ridiculous when you just say what the twist is when you haven't seen the movie, but in the context of the film, I think it works. Yeah. Uh, do you know what it is? I know what the twist is, yeah. Yeah. Are we going to spoil the village here? No, we'll I don't we'll I don't know it. what the twist is, so we'll leave it. We, me? we might we might do an episode on it. We'll leave it. No, hold it's on. Just... How do you not know what the twist to the village is? Just do cultural osmosis. I probably do know. I just can't connect it to the village. There okay. is a film that I have seen recently that has that exact same twist. Um, <laughs> that I have been avoiding mentioning to you because I, you keep insisting that, well, you keep hinting that you might want to see that movie one day. So I've been preserving the spoiler, but uh, yeah. But then, you know, Lady in the Water, The Happening. I mean, The Happening's twist is that it's actually just a comedy film. That Shyamalan career track really cratered, didn't it? After Avatar. Avatar Oh, no, before Avatar. Avatar was a culmination. Avatar was sort of like stepping on his back. It's like that part in Glass where someone steps on Dunn's back and drowns him in the puddle. That's what what Avatar Last Airbender did to his career. But it's, it's like he... So he starts off right out of the gate with, you know, a couple of indie movies... But then in his third movie is The Sixth Sense, and that's his big breakthrough, very twist-heavy. Everyone's like, oh, what's the next one going to be? Unbreakable. Another one with yeah. a big twist at the end there. Mr. Glass is the villain. Then Signs. Not really a twist, but people like to pretend that it is. The Village. Everyone's like, okay, here's where he's here's where he's jumped the shark. Ridiculous twist. And I think a lot of that is people who haven't seen the movie who don't understand how it works in context. It's framed in the movie perfectly. Yes. But then the village, like Sixth Sense, Unbreakable, Signs, all critically acclaimed. Yeah. Some to in in decreasing amounts. Obviously, yeah. once you get to Signs, <laughs> people are less hot on that than they are on the Sixth Sense. Even though for me personally, it's the opposite direction. Signs is my favorite, followed by Unbreakable, followed by the Sixth Sense. But that's just me. But then the village gets mixed reviews, and after that, we get the Nadir. The Crash, Lady in the Water, The Happening, The Last Airbender, and After Earth, all in a row. Oh, fuck, that's right, After Earth, Jesus. That's a bad run. That's a bad, bad run. Like, After Earth didn't go down smooth. No, that was a rough pill to swallow. I love The Happening, though. It's It's just stupid enough to really appeal to me. You have to change your mindset going into The Happening. Yeah, it's not a serious film. But then it gets to the point where when he's trying to get the visit made in 2015, studios don't want to work for him, don't want to work with him anymore. He has mm-hmm. real a really hard time getting anyone to fund a movie with him attached to it. And so he goes to Blumhouse. And Jason Blum's like, yep. And the visit does really well. He follows it up with Split, which does really well. And now he's sort of back on top. Glass... Critically mixed reactions, but it did really well financially. And The Visit, too. Crazy twist. Mm. Like, do you know that one? Uh, vaguely. Vague. I got got vague guesses, but I don't really know. We'll leave it. Well, he's doing this this new one now for, um, I think for Blumhouse again, called Old. Did you see the trailer that I sent you? Oh, the trailer looks great. Yes, that looks wicked. It's right up your alley. I'll watch the hell out of that. A family vacationing go to an isolated beach, but there is some sort of strange 
effects, supernatural effects that the beach is having, where they all begin aging rapidly. Yes. That's got that cosmic shit we like. Yeah. And there's also the servant who that Shyamalan's doing for Apple TV. Yeah. I watched the first trailer for that show months ago when the first trailer came out, and I was like, that looks interesting. It's only recently that we've actually that got away through the PlayStation to be able to watch it on the TV, but we haven't gotten around to it yet. And the the trailer for the second season came out, and I watched the trailer for it, and it's like... It's so starkly different. It's like, I, (laughs) I, 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 I know this is the same show, but there's stuff happening in this trailer that I have no clue what it's about. This looks wild as hell. Let's move on to... Something that we all expressed reservations about in our thoughts about the film, which is its depiction of mental health issues. Its depiction of dissociative identity disorder as, well, someone suffering from dissociative identity disorder as violent, as a threat. And being a threat in some ways because of the dissociative identity disorder. Like, I have misgivings around that, but I think it's a lot... It's a very complicated look at it, because the vast majority of the personalities are harmless. Um, it, it is the ones who choose cruelty that are the threat. It, it, like Patricia and Dennis, and you could even say that Hedwig is being cajoled into it. Yeah. Hedwig, by the way, is kind of an idiot. <laughs> Hedwig's He's an idiot, nine yeah. years old! But he's a, he's a stupid nine-year-old. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. He's a he's a particularly dim nine year old. He's an okay. Let's let's put it this way. He's a nine year old who's had who hasn't been in the light for years until Dennis took over and has been living in the bowels of a zoo this whole time without any other children around him, without being taught. He has no education. He's got no education. He's got no self control. There's only dark sarcasm in the classroom. In fact, there's no classroom. But like. No one is nurturing Hedwig. Patricia is manipulating him. They're using him because so, he can control the light. Yeah, so like, that like, that to me reads that he has absolutely been in the light. Hasn't been locked away from the light. No, 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 up until... Because Barry used to control the light. But Hedwig gained control over it. Yeah. After what happened at, on that field trip. All right. We've watched this like four times, so... <laughs> Like, the, the way I look at the use of dissociative identity disorder in the film is a, it's complicated. It's obviously people with dissociative identity disorder don't gain superpowers, but there is a whole lot to do with what the mind um, and what our perceptions are. For yes. example, Hedwig, as a nine-year-old boy, can't push open that heavy door with two teenage girls holding it shut. Because he's nine. Like, Hedwig believes he can't do that, so he can't. And that is that is interesting. Like, that is demonstrably true that the human body has an... The, the mind has an effect on the body. Yeah. Like, yeah. maybe not to, to some of the really drastic degrees that are presented in this movie. I don't know. I haven't done the research. But certainly, like, stuff like the placebo effect, that the body can heal itself if it is given, you know, a sugar pill that... The person believes is actual curative medication. I mean, up to a point. And that that is something that, like, medical trials have to take into account now. 
Yeah. And, like, there's one of the examples that the psychiatrist in this, not a very good psychiatrist, by the way. Oh, I think she's pretty good. Actually says, she cites the case of a blind lady whose other personalities developed sight. Now, I don't think it was that way around. I don't think her eyesight healed. I think that one personality believed they were blind, and so they were. Well, no, because she says that the nerve endings are burned away. Well, obviously, that's that's the explanation in the film. This is a this is a continuity with superpowers. What I'm suggesting is that sort of stuff, due to the power of the mind, can occur. We can believe ourselves sick and make ourselves sick. We can believe that we are incapable of doing something, so therefore we can't. And I'm fairly certain that it, it's the it's it's kind of like. What happens with hypnotists? How hypnotist can 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 hypnotize you and convince you one of your senses is gone. Mm. It, the the power of the the mind shapes perception. And what are we? What do we have if not our perception of things? The mind funnels all of that information. And if the mind says you can't do something, you can't. Shyamalan is taking real life phenomena and he is sort of heightening it. He's enhancing it to new levels of exaggeration. Yeah. Let's put it that way. And it's it's a fictional movie. It's not trying to accurately display that. Yeah. On the other hand, that like a lot of organizations who work with people with, you know, mental illnesses and mental disorders and the like are valid in their criticisms that Oh yeah. The portrayal of it it stigmatizes like one percent of like what what's the thing people with did who may represent over one percent of americans are rarely violent research has shown that they are far more likely to hurt themselves than to hurt others and be victims themselves yeah it's it's and at this point we're not just talking about did we're talking about all sorts of of mental illness that yeah this is a something that we touched on briefly when we were talking about me myself and irene a few weeks ago that the Treatment of mental illness in media is not great. Far too often it is used to belittle or to to be a threat. Yeah. That a that a person with who that a villain is is mentally ill and the the mental illness is what makes them villainous. Okay. So I don't think that there is anything inherently wrong with presenting a villain who is mentally ill. At a certain point, part like that's just you know you look at a whole bunch of different serial killers throughout history. You know they were mentally ill. Yeah, they had diagnosed problems that influenced their actions. That's a simple statement of fact. The problem comes when it's not just this one movie where you have a mentally ill villain. It's like every time you see a mentally ill person that person is presented in a negative context. At that point, it's a stereotype because it's presenting it as if it's always like that. It's the same thing of like, you know, it's not a problem in and of itself to have a movie with a black gang member in it. It is a statement of fact to say that there are gang members in the world who are black. The, the problem becomes when every gang member you see in a movie is black. Yeah. Because then you're going into a stereotype, and and the weight of uh, the, the 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 scales are, are off. The weight yeah. of the scales are off. And I mean, the character of Kevin is based 
somewhat on a real person, Billy Milligan, who was a man who was diagnosed by psychologists with multiple personality disorder, who committed several felonies, including armed robbery, and was arrested for three rapes on the campus of Ohio State University. This was in the in the 60s and 70s. So I, I read a bit about him. He had something like 20... Some, how many personalities did he have? He had quite a few, didn't he? Sure. Yeah, Milligan was sent to a series of state-run mental hospitals such as the Athens State Hospital, where, by his report, he received very little help. While he was in these hospitals, Milligan reported having ten different personalities. These ten were the only ones known to psychologists. Later on, an additional 14 personalities, labelled the undesirables, were discovered. Among the first ten were Arthur, a prim and proper Englishman, who was an expert in science, medicine, and hematology. Alan, a manipulator. Tommy, an escape artist and technophile. Ragen Vodzinovich, a Yugoslav communist who Milligan claimed had committed the robberies in a kind of Robin Hood spirit. And Adelana, a 19-year-old lesbian, shy, lonely, and introverted, who cooked for all the personalities and craved affection, and who had allegedly committed the rapes. Yeah, so obviously there are real-life examples of mentally ill people committing crimes. And there are also real-life examples of... Uh, how do I put this? Oh, I don't want to put my foot in my mouth. There are also examples... I don't know much about DID, but there are examples of other mental illnesses that influence people to commit crimes, that they're not in and of themselves the reason that crimes are committed, but they're a contributing factor when added to a whole bunch of other stimuli, environment, you know, upbringing, stuff like that. And that's why, like, something such as mental illness has to be taken into account when it comes to a person's culpability for an action. Yes. And that's why it's that's why it's so important to have robust systems of mental health awareness and mental health treatment in society, or else p- these people will slip through the cracks and either become perpetrators or victims. Most often, victims. So the problem here for me is not necessarily the fact that Kevin that some of the personalities of Kevin are violent. Uh, although I would say that the fact that split personalities are so rarely depicted on screen in a manner that are not that is not violent that that is a problem that the the cumulative weight of this of psycho of identity um, of of movies such as this creates an incorrect view of of a stigma dissociative identity disorder yes and I and I am sort of not sure how I feel about how much any one movie is culpable or what duty yep. of care any one storyteller has in that regard, That's a, that becomes a really thorny issue. But the thing that, that kind of throws me about Split, the thing that stands out uniquely about Split that I kind of can't get over and will always have a weird feeling about is the idea of, well, what if one of the personalities was a monster? Then the person would be a monster. You know, then he would have special powers. What if, you know, what if he was a monster who could crawl up walls and 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 ate human sacrifices and and things like that? There's sort of a, an additional like like almost supernatural malevolence that is attached mm. to the illness in this particular presentation that I find hard 
to deal with. And there's also the misrepresentation within the context of the things that the psychiatrist character is saying. Like, she is saying all of these things that aren't provable. And all of these things that she is saying, how the body's physiology can change, how the body's chemistry can change, has seemed to affect Kevin and the other personalities to the point where she is part of the creation of the personality of the beast. She's part of the reason why the beast formed. And the beast even thanks her for helping him emerge. I don't have a problem with the psychiatrist in this movie. I think she's actually pretty good. Mm. Our, our, our mum has a degree in psychology and psychotherapy. Our, our mum has degrees in this and has said in her professional opinion that she's not a good therapist. She's good character, but she's not a good therapist. She's fulfilling a certain function within yeah. the narrative structure yeah, of the of movie. And she's right. In in the world of the movie, that the movie is presenting as being real, these exaggerated symptoms of dissociative identity disorder, these, these exaggerated superhuman ways that the body can change its own body chemistry. She every she's not saying anything incorrect no. throughout the yeah. film. What 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 my only criticisms of her really as a see, and this is a thing, is like in the real world, did she do good? Probably not. But in the world of the movie, I I can let her off the hook on some of those things. The thing that the the big screw up that she makes is that she does not call the authorities. At a certain point, she gets she should know that it is her duty of care to to call the police for a wellness check on yeah. Kevin, not go there herself in the dead of night to a underground maintenance facility at the local zoo. Like <laughs> with a person with a personality she knows to be hostile. Part, well, part of it is that when Dennis was talking to her, he treated her with such respect that she let her guard down. And I think that there is, like, a compassion for her of from her, too, that she really wants the best for them and is, like, the way that she is not being taken seriously by her colleagues, she doesn't believe that if she brings institutions into this that Kevin's going to get the help that he needs. Yeah, it's part of that. Like, she, she unknowingly contributes to the formation of the beast as a personality as do the people around him like being at the zoo helps form some of the yeah. traits that the beast I don't think has. any of that's on them though for just just being in the general vicinity of oh, him oh no or... like uh, th- there are levels of culpability here i would argue i would not argue that that the therapist is culpable for telling him things that in the world of the movie are statements of true fact. Okay, so let's dig into the identities that Kevin has. The main ones we meet, or at least believe that we meet, are Patricia, Dennis, Hedwig, Barry, and Orwell Kevin. and Jade. We get a small hint of them. Now, Dennis is a very interesting case. Dennis is a germaphobe but also has a tendency to watch young girls dance naked. Yeah. I mean, they specifically, like, uh, the therapist specifically says that he has obsessive compulsive disorder. Hmm. Yeah. And he has the, over the course of the film, he is sort of the, the brute force guy hmm. for the Horde. He, he, he makes the excuse that the girls' clothes are dirty to get them undressed over the course of the film, which I found was quite, interesting and disturbing yeah in in this this viewing there was a point for you where you were like oh yeah he's not doing it because he's 
freaking out because it's dirty. He's this is a point for him, and there's a, there's a point where he's like, I'm not going to ask you to take it off because it doesn't matter anymore. Look, the beast is coming, and he's going to kill you. It's interesting also the way that Shyamalan uses that as a structural thing. Like, actually, it's kind of important structurally to the movie that Casey disrobe gradually so yeah. that at the end she can take off the, the the jumper and just be in the in the singlet so that we can see the cuts that say eventually saves her from and the beast. as the movie's progressing she's also battling with her own demons because of her past and her past with abuse and as the pieces of clothing come off she is more and more becoming vulnerable she she's like in her mind, unpacking a lot of the stuff. Yeah. Can I? Can I just say I? I absolutely agree with Claire, played by Haley Lou Richardson. The play was to immediately attack. Yeah. Yes. As quickly as like, okay, maybe not Dennis, but once Hedwig shows up, you beat that child. Yeah, you beat that child. You. <laughs> it's like, okay because he's in a man's body. It's okay. He's like thirty. <laughs> you, you, see what you do is you you get the kid on the ground and then you just keep <laughs> you keep going until <laughs> he's no longer moving. <laughs> you get the pillow. Just I I actually think like like that's the real tragedy for me is that they like I ve- I really like Claire and I really like Haley Lou Richardson. Yeah. I've seen her in a few other things. I think she's a very good actor and. You know, Marsha too, played by Jessica Sula. Like she doesn't really have as much of an opportunity to differentiate herself in the yeah. in the film, but I like her too. And it's I'm sad to see them eaten alive yeah. at the end of the movie. And there's yeah. a thing of like the moment after Dennis first leaves, after all of that, Hilary Lou Richards' character is like, "No, we, we've got to do something. We've got to survive. We've got to get out of here." She she just goes into the action mode quickly and. They make a lot of right decisions. And, and the thing that's stopping Casey is her fear. Yeah. As well. She is... A, she's a victim of abuse. A survivor of abuse. And she has learnt these various techniques to de-escalate. Yeah. And, and learn these various strategies to disengage from those situations as well. Because this is something that she lives with, you know. Her uncle is her abuser, and he is her caretaker. Her father has passed away. Yeah, and she has... And it's shown throughout the movie that she has all of these traits where she tries to make herself seem so small and not get noticed by people. And she thinks that that is the way of getting out of this scenario. She's very carefully amenable to all of the different personalities, like making them believe that she is on their side, you know? Even, like, the way that she doesn't try and escape when Patricia takes them to the kitchen. And, in fact, Patricia just says, go back to your room, close the door, and she does. Like, let's talk a little bit about Patricia. Oh, she's my favourite. She gets so catty as well. I'll make your second sandwich. Do you know... Family of lions can eat thirty-five pounds a day. Uh, buck can lose thirty percent of its weight during mating season, chasing does around. They're crepuscular, right? Means they travel around during dusk and dawn. Good for you. I don't know if you know, but tigers 
have only 30 teeth. That's 12 less than a dog. I thought that was a fun fact. She's so bitchy. James McVoy just seems to be having the most fun with her. Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. And with Hedwig as well, but mostly her. Like, like just the, his, his very strange line deliveries, like the very first scene of Glass when he's taking new hostages and the, he takes on the Patricia personality and she comes into the room and, and sort of talks to these girls and is like, now, who wants a PB and Jay sandwich. <laughs> like, mm. way that- I also love the part where she, <laughs> where as Patricia, he's like, he goes into this really interesting place where he does a lot of face acting. Like the first, in the first introduction to Patricia, where he's like, he's not allowed to touch you. And he does that sort of yeah. pouting thing where he's like, it's, it's Patricia trying to. It's kind of like an evil Mary Poppins almost. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like an older English woman. Like, Patricia kind of real. She's feigning wanting them to calm down, but she does enjoy their terror. Yeah. She likes that they're afraid. And and she's all. And the way that she talks, she's almost like a high priestess for the beast. Like, the. And in that same sense, Dennis is sort of like a priest. But, the, like, the way that, like, in a roundabout way. Dennis is the most regretful one of the three of them for for what it is that they're doing to the girls. Like that's a like considering the information we get about him at the beginning that he is a, a sexual pervert. Yeah. That 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 ends up being the case is an interesting turn that we that we even the way that it's set up at the beginning where they hear the argument between Dennis and Patricia through the door that it's sort of setting it up from the beginning that. Patricia is going to be the protector, almost, mm. or the the voice of reason. And Shyamalan turns it around by the end and has it be Dennis. Yeah, and by the time that Glass, like, by the time of Glass, Dennis has sort of switched. He doesn't want the beast out anymore and has been pushed down. Yeah. And um, Hedwig. I like Hedwig, uh, too. Hedwig is just... Astonishing! Goes so hard into it. Oh yeah, yeah. The like, dancing. Oh, <laughs> that is the down. scariest part of the movie for me. Like for watching that in cinema, the part where he's like shaking like that. Yeah. You can't see what I'm doing, listeners, but it's the part where he's sort of like puppeting and like waving his arms around and shaking. Honestly, in the cinema, I was like, "Holy fuck!" It's like Kanye's my main man. And, and then when you pick up again with him in glass, he's like telling the hostages about how, you know, he used to be a bit, Drake, I used to like Kanye, but now I like Drake. I used to like Nikki too, but then they broke up and you can't like both. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like the thing with Hedwig is that there's this thing with kids where they have like no concern to to where they are. They don't have a great understanding of cause and effect. And th- there's like a freedom of movement as well. Like, a lot of kids they don't have any like self-awareness of how they look there's no there's there's no self-esteem there and it's and it's there's there's a a innocent narcissism to them yeah. as well they don't they don't have the capacity to think outside of their own experiences or like, to prioritize other people over themselves yeah and, and McAvoy doesn't act strictly childish he acts like a kid yeah and that is so terrifying, seeing, a like, a grown adult. Just let himself go like that. 
to let himself like physically embody that is so odd. The part where he kisses her and is like, you're pregnant now? Yeah. It is d- disturbing, too, to see a grown man of McAvoy's size, because he's buff mm. in this movie. Oh, yeah, he's oh, big. Yeah. Behaving like a nine-year-old, like a child. And then there's this sort of... It, and, it, and it's the different... Like, when you see an adult doing it, it kind of... That, that naivete, that innocence that a child possesses is at odds. The personality of that is totally at odds with the body of an adult who we associate with a much more mature and self-conscious psyche. I mean, it's the idea of, like, a nine-year-old pulling the legs off ants is something a nine-year-old does. Yeah. An adult doing it is a psycho. Oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And it's that whole thing of he's also not that bright of a child. He's... Oh, yeah, he's an idiot. Yeah, he's not He's not that bright of a child. He's hasn't had the chance. He's a little... He's also a little bit nuts. He, he maybe has the, the emotional age of, like, five or six. Yeah. And that's that's again another interesting way of him playing it. And the phys- uh, and again, I can't gush about the physical portrayal of Hedwig more. Like there's the part where he's like, it's like Hedwig, how old are you? And he's like nine. And he sort of sits up really proud <laughs> and that. And it's like there is so much about the different characters and their portrayals. Like when Dennis is pretending to be Barry, it's like he. He puts on all of these movements and all of that, but it's so easy to see through it. He cannot help himself. Like, and and Dennis's accent is so thick, and it's a, it's like so thick a New York accent that it comes through heavy when he's pretending to be Barry. Mm. And when you get those clips of Barry talking later, it's a much more relaxed voice, and the accent is not as heavy. He's playing double duty there. Yeah. Being Dennis, playing Barry. I mean, it's got to be such an appealing role as an actor, too. Absolutely. But but so few actors would be capable of doing it so well. I believe Joaquin Phoenix was Charlotte's first, like... Yeah, they they couldn't hammer out a a contract, if I recall correctly. I think he struck gold with McAvoy, though. Yeah, I think... I feel like Joaquin would have seemed far more dangerous when he needed to seem a little softer. Yeah. Like with Hedwig, even with Patricia, they needed a big sort of a... I think with... I think a Joaquin Patricia would have seemed more like Mrs. Bates than Mary Poppins, you know? And it's also like the... It's kind of the head shape and the face shape and how big McAvoy's eyes are when he's Hedwig. He like... He changes the way his face looks so that he does look innocent. He does look like a nine-year-old. And when he's... When he gets hit, it's like, it's almost, you, your visceral reaction is, she just hit a nine-year-old. Dennis says to Haley Lou's character, you know, you shouldn't trick children. It just shows who you really are. It's like, even the other personalities are somewhat protective of Hedwig because he is the child that Kevin never could have been, who never was allowed to be. And that's why I look at each of the personalities as being so distinct, because they are. And it just, like, it the scene that truly crushes me every time we see it is when Kevin emerges. I swear I was on a bus. I don't remember anything after that. I... This is still September 18, 2014, right? 
There's a shotgun I bought. It's in the bottom cabinet, hidden behind things. The shells are in my uniform closet out in the service hall. Kill me. And then they go, they go through the cycle as all of the other oh. personalities start to emerge as well. They're, they're desperate to stay alive. Yeah. And McAvoy gets to go through them one by one. And it, it's sort of a realisation for the audience and for Casey as well that's so important that we've seen so much of these three sinister characters at this point, antagonists. It's a really important emotional moment that Casey and the audience get to see all of these desperate people. No, wait, 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 wait. No, 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 don't do that. Don't do that. He can't handle reality. My name is Jade. Has Dr. Fletcher been getting our emails? This is what we have to do. We can... As in 1008, when Anadipala suffered the Shahi's most crushing defeat and Mahmud overran the entirety of the Punjab region, taking the famed Temple of Kangra, we have been wronged by this alliance, this horde of Patricia, Dennis, and the boy. Their actions do not represent us. They are every... Everybody just take a minute. Oh, baby girl... They've been stealing control of their life from me, but their group are going to work through this. Honey, my name is Barry. In that scene where he turns, when he becomes Orwell, and Orwell says, we have been wronged by this horde of Dennis, Patricia, and the boy. The rest of them do blame Hedwig as well. Mm. Because Hedwig, Hedwig is responsible. And it's such a, um, like... There, there are really, like, high-intensity emotional beats as well. I love the scene where the therapist opens the door and sees Hayley Richardson. Yeah. Mm. Leading up to, to her being drugged. Like, the way that she is arguing with Dennis, you know, that her, her such horror and, you know, pain. Yeah, the way she says, this is an egregious wrong. Yeah. And I love the way that Hayley Lou's like, are, are you real? Hmm. But Betty Buckley is just so good yeah. as mm. the therapist. Like, she's so, so good. And then she gets squeezed like a tube of toothpaste. And she she gives, she spends that last bit of her energy giving Casey that information about yeah. saying the name Kevin Wendell Crumb that will, will bring about the emergence of the real Kevin. But she's mostly a, a stage actress. She's done some uh, some TV things, but this is like her most high-profile movie role. She was in The Happening, and yet, for some reason, agreed to work for M. Night Shyamalan again. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's the script that would have made the difference. (laughs) It is weird. It's like, going from The Happening, which, not to bag on the movie too much, because I love it, the script is dog shit in that movie. John doesn't love it for the reason that Shyamalan intended. She's in Supergirl, too. I don't know if you recognised her from that. Patricia Arias? Yes! Yes, yes, yes. Yes, that's right. Yep. I, I, I like the scene that she shares with Shyamalan in this. <laughs> oh, yeah. The cameo. You can so tell that M. Night Shyamalan really wishes that he could be an actor, you know? Mm. Like, he always mm. casts himself in his own thing. And that's, like, the most shoehorned scene in In Glass is that character returns in the yeah, security yeah. shop and we get the connection that he's actually playing the same character that he played, the drug dealer from Unbreakable who, you know, 
got on the straight and narrow in split and now he's the and now he's running this apartment building and then in glass he's gone into the security shop because one of the residents got killed offside and everyone's really nervous yeah (laughs) i do love how he's like the schlubbiest guy Hmm. like he's the most (laughs) you look at him he's like that's a just a dude into in terms of of the therapist and her 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 angle of the story there was a whole series of scenes that were deleted that are on the disc that were of her and her life, and they included a a whole other character that is gone. It was a neighbour of hers, a university professor, played by Sterling K. Brown, and she and he, and he's like an, an an expert on. He's like a doctor. Uh, I forget what field exactly, but like she's talking to him about all her theories on the brain chemistry changes and things, and asking him questions and things. But it's also over the course of it you start to understand that this is a lonely old woman who has kind of a crush on a on a guy half her age. Yeah. And it yeah. gets like really awkward by the end. But that but the, it's it's elucidated in that she she pretty much says it to him is that that's one of the reasons that she cares so much about her patients is is she she identifies with their isolation and their loneliness and not having anyone. And I get why I get why it's all cut because it is entirely extraneous. It has no impact on the rest of the movie whatsoever. It could be a pace killer too. Yeah, I did. I did appreciate that it sort of it it gave her some depth and some um, emotional motivation for. I, I I think if it was still in the movie, her decision to go to the zoo alone at the at night, it would make much more sense than it than it does yeah Yeah. i i love the scene where it's that whole process of getting to the train yard Mm. the the back and forth passing between patricia and dennis but dennis is like you know what i'm gonna stop and buy the big bouquet of flowers (laughs) just to welcome him no that's that's part of the ceremony because Mm. it's to honor the death of his father uh his father left on the train a train derailed by Mr. Glass. Yes, the same train crash that Dave, uh, that Dunn survives in Unbreakable. I know there's like a scene in Unbreakable. It's that scene where Bruce Willis is walking through the the lobby of the train station and picking up on all of the the unsavory things going on as he decides who he's going to bring to justice. And there's a scene with a woman and a young boy walking past that he he gets flashes of abuse from and i know there's like some fan theory that everyone falls over themselves to try and propagate that that was kevin and his mother but no the timeline doesn't work out on that the timeline that mcavoy would not have been that young 19 years prior to to glass and he transforms at the train yard because that's a very significant trauma point for him and that whole scene where he transforms like it's he then from then gets shot to look much bigger. Yeah. It's also like him taking off his his shirt so we actually see yeah. his body for the first time. And McAvoy's like in full muscle mode. Yeah. And the noise he makes, the <sighs> sound, like the grunting of a beast. It's just brilliant. He has so much control in this film. Yeah. It's remarkable. Let's talk about, about, not like the direct ending, but the ending. 
the de- the broken or the more evolved. Yeah, I think that's what kind of saves some of the issues with mental illness that this movie has is that at the end of the day, it is kind, it is empathetic. You know, mm. it's kind of it's well intentioned in a clumsy kind of way. Oh yeah, like that's that that's what you can say about Shyamalan, really. Like with the happening, it's a it's an environmental message. It's just not done well. After Earth, it's environmental, but not done well. Lady in the Lake, it's environmental, but not done well. Shyamalan, it is worth noting that Shyamalan does fall on the uh, the mentally ill psychopath trope quite a bit. Yeah. Mm. It happens at the beginning of Sixth Sense. It happens at the end of The Visit. He uses the trope a little more than I'm necessarily comfortable with. It seems like a go-to of his that I can't quite get behind. But what he... What he's doing here is more thoughtful than usual, more compassionate than usual. And and the, the philosophy of the beast is that if you have not been hurt, you can never be strong. You can never deal with the world. Yeah, the beast has social Darwinist beliefs. And he thinks that trauma is purifying, in a sense that people have not gone through trauma as impure. I would argue that being kidnapped by a man with multiple personalities and being kept in what, to the inside observer, would seem to be just tunnels under the ground, getting your clothes taken away from you, and being chased about by him wearing a dress, is suffering. I would call that trauma. So, the sort of the entire belief of the beast... Simply being kidnapped is traumatic enough. Yeah. So, I would argue that the beast is... It's more doing... The beast is doing it more for its own... Well, look at it this way. The beast is a being formed from trauma. Yeah. The beast's whole purpose is to be a strong defender for Kevin. Yeah. Like, the beast's whole purpose is to dole that pain onto others. Well, yeah, but also you know? you, you're starting to get a little pedantic. Like, the point that they've kidnapped these girls... Like, Casey wasn't supposed to be there. Like, she's there entirely by accident. The the Dennis has been scouting Claire and Marsha ahead of time, and, and they were the ones that they were after because they, you know, have never suffered, have gone through life happy and well with everything that they need. And... That's, you know, if if you're going to make the argument that that the beast coming for them in and of itself is enough to make them ineligible for the beast to come for them, like, it, it, it's just a little bit of pedantry, I think, at that point. I mean, sure. you are technically correct, the best kind of correct, but... Exactly. <laughs> uh, at, for, for you sort of just at a, at a certain point. I mean, the point is, is that prior to their encounter with the beast, they... They represent, you know, it is part of, it's part of their, it's their role in the ritual, you know? And it doesn't necessarily, the movie doesn't necessarily say that they haven't suffered before in their lives. Dennis doesn't know. Hmm. Dennis can't know. The, the beast can't know. It's, he's going for people who, as you say, symbolize yeah. something. Who seem fine. He be- who believe, who he believes are fine. Yeah. Like, he doesn't know that Casey has suffered until he sees the scars. Yeah, and that's what's so fundamentally villainous about the mindset of the Horde, is that 
their solution is to harm others, to feel powerful. That is expressly why Hedwig is interested in this. He wants to feel tough so the world can't hurt him. Patricia wants to feel strong so that Kevin can be protected. That's why Dennis is there too. All they consider to be strength is hurting others. Whereas the other 20 just want to keep Kevin safe without harming people. And just on the finale as well, like, like this is Shyamalan at his best in terms of thriller directing, isn't it? Yes. The him crawling on the thing and smashing the lights out. Yeah. Or even just like the way that he frames the arrival of the beast, the train rushing in front, him running along the along the street, the overhead shot of him running under the light. Gorgeous shot. Mm. I love shit like he that. He's booking it. He's booking it, yeah. And, and and the part where he's crawling on the wall or climbing on the wall, brilliantly shot and brilliantly scored. The music in that moment in particular is incredible. I have to say the music is quite effective in this. Oh, yeah, and it's used cleverly. Like, you, the unbreakable theme comes in before you ever see Bruce Willis. Yeah. Like mm. the moment that... The moment that percussion comes in, those drums come in, you just think to yourself, hmm, that's weird. That sounds like the early 2000s. <laughs> it's like, that's oddly huh. dour and heroic. Um, my my particular favorite piece of music is Kevin Wendell Crumb, yeah. which they reuse in Gloss in the track Kevin and Casey as, okay, spoiler alert for Gloss, as Kevin is shot. Mm. And is dying. And he cycles through all of his personalities again. and Again. But wants to die as Kevin. I feel like we're reaching the end here. Is there anything else that you guys would like to touch on? Uh, no, I, I, think, I think we've touched on everything. Mm-hmm. Well, in that case, there's no, nothing in the parents' guide this week. Nothing that wouldn't have earned its way there. So why don't we move on to... Uh, who our MVPs are for this movie and what our favorite scene or sequences are. I will start us off. And I will say that I've actually picked an MVP that I I know who is going to end up appearing on this list. So I decided to pick someone who I thought might not make it otherwise. And so I'm going to go with Betty Buckley because I think she is just wonderful as this therapist. I think she brings such warmth and empathy to that character she's very compassionate and you know you really care about her and you're sad to see her get Mm. squeezed mulched like a like an orange in a juicer (laughs) it's it's a good performance it makes me wish that betty buckley got more work yeah and in terms of my favorite scene or sequence i'm going with the scene when casey calls out kevin wendell crumb's full name and we get the cycle of personalities as she finally realizes that there are actually all of these other good people uh, locked in there as well. And the sort of panic of them, the the sadness of Kevin as he realizes what's happening, yeah, you know, stuff like that. I think it's, it's a fantastic showcase for McAvoy's performance because you're seeing him just switch through all these different personas on the fly. But it's also like a really raw emotional moment for the movie that i think is so crucial what about you john i'm gonna give it to mcavoy just he he's like gary oldman he's an actor's actor he gets these characters and the moment you see him portray them you think yep that's the way you do it 
Samuel L. Jackson had a great quote about James McAvoy when he worked with him on Glass. He said, As good as I like to think I am or what I do and how I do it, watching somebody transform characters in front of your eyes and have an argument with four different people is pretty amazing. Yeah. So yeah. If, if you're if you're throwing off Samuel L. Jackson with how good you are, then you're, you're doing pretty well. Exactly. Oh, yeah. And it's that whole thing of the way he switches so effortlessly in with, like, the smallest movement of his face, but it's so big. He is absolutely incredible. The vocal work he does, also, the different voices, the way he portrays Dennis pretending to be Barry, is just fantastic, and you only get more of that in Glass. His scenes in Glass are the best parts for me, because you see more of the personalities, you see how some of how the beliefs of some of the other personalities have changed how some have gone to the side of the beast like we find out at the end of glass that barry has joined the horde and that's sad that's depressing we didn't mention either but i really like how kevin and casey's relationship wraps up Mm. at the end of that it's a nice grace moment for that those characters yeah john favorite scene i have to agree with Lawson. That entire scene, the way that McAvoy acts it, the way that he says it's still t- December 2014, right? I was on a bus. I swear I was on a bus. I swear I was on a bus. And the resignation on his face when he says, there's a shotgun there, there's shells in my locker, kill me. And the panic on the other members' faces... Like, I already said, Orwell's response of, we have been wronged. Yeah. It's just incredible. It, it's just incredible. It, if you didn't want to be an actor before that, that's the scene to do it. That It, it shows what acting can do. He's like a special effect, basically. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. I Part of me wants to deviate. Go with your heart, dude. Go with your heart. I gotta say, McAvoy is my MVP. I love to watch that man work. Yeah. Like, and this is an actor's role that you could really, you know, get into, and I love to see him do it. Yeah, there's, there's like, that quote where anyone can act. Acting is reacting. Anyone can be, like, some characters. Not just anyone can do this character. Yeah. It, you, you needed someone so precise so measured in their physicality and and vocal ability to be able to differentiate these different characters. So meticulous at their craft. Yeah, and he does so expertly. And I also have to give credit to Shyamalan for this as well, because he worked with McAvoy developing these personalities, developing these other characters so that it could work. And, again, you don't often get the hat trick, but my favorite scene is the Kevin Wendell Crumb scene. And it, it it broke me in cinemas watching that. I was like, oh, Christ, what the Horde has done, it has, like, 20 more victims. Yeah, and who, we'll have who, more. Who didn't, like, they didn't sign up for this. They're, it's not their fault what these three other people have done. And one of my favorite little touches is that when when it's Kevin and the other positive personalities there, there's no blood around his mouth. But the moment it switches to Hedwig, the blood is there again, which is such a like it's a subliminal touch. 
but works so well at differentiating them. Uh, and and like I said before, the music in that scene is just top notch. So Lawson, what have we got next week? Well, next week we will be doing Shrek, the very first I'm Shrek. Shrek movie. This is going to be a fun. What movie. are you doing in my swamp? Can we have a rule that you not do that next episode, John? I don't know can, if can I can do it. Can I just get it. it out now? Yeah. Don't care. If you would like to watch along at home, you can find it available for streaming on Prime Video, Binge, Foxtel Now, and Stan. It is also available for purchase or rental on the YouTube, Fetch, Apple, and Amazon stores. Everywhere. Except Netflix. They're like the one that doesn't have it. We don't see that very often. Hmm. If you want to reach us, you can find us at each of our blogs. You can find Lawson at X with the Candy County. You can find John and myself at On the Bright Side. You can also reach us through our Twitter, which is the best place to give episode-specific feedback and film recommendations to John at I. We're on a real Australian cinema kick right now. Well, that's because Dad has made it a mandate that we have yeah, to. Yeah, I know that. But if if you have any Australian films that you'd recommend, uh, sh- shoot those along. Yeah. By this point, you can kind of get... Uh, an idea of the kind of movies we like, so... Yeah. Suggest movies that we won't like. That could be equally as fun. Yeah. Get Harley to watch The Cell again. <laughs> Not in your life. <laughs> no. No. Ugh. Never happening. You could also like, comment, and subscribe on your podcast app of choice. Commenting for those is... For the show on the whole, not specific episodes. But if you do so, it looks good to the algorithm with which we all have to reckon with to get our work out there. Just to reinforce, we are changing our name to The Long Watch. uh, And that will be occurring after our best of 2020. And the the name will change on March the 13th. Yep. Yep. Again, it's got that new revamped picture, but it will still be recognized. Oh, yeah. on a cursory glance, it'll look practically the same. I've I've tried to keep it as close as possible while also making it look nicer. Hello, I've been Holly Lewis. He- hello. What? Sorry. <laughs> uh, uh, sorry, I threw myself off. Jesus. Um, I've been Holly Lewis. I've been Lawson Keeney. And I have been, and will continue to be Jean Lewis.